Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today we have episode 260 for February 21st, 2022. And we've got a news show for you today. Plenty of things to catch you up on. But before we get into that, uh, real quick, uh, my five-year anniversary of the podcast is coming up quickly. March 8th, 2017 was when I started doing all of this. So we're coming up on the 5th birthday of the podcast. And so to uh, celebrate that, I'm going to be having a giveaway promotion. We're gonna, I'm going to give away a bunch of stuff. That may start on the uh, on f- March 7th, I think, which is the show closest to that day. But sometime in the next few weeks, I'll be starting that. So stay tuned for that. But again, we got a new show for you today. So I've got several topics. We're going to talk about some wins up front. We've got a couple short articles about some things that have improved. First of all, Microsoft has finally disabled macros by default for something you download from the internet. Why it took so long to do that, I don't know. Uh, but that's a welcome improvement. The IRS has decided to ditch its biometric requirement for uh, access to its online accounts, which is great. Also, the uh, the Missouri prosecutor will not be pressing charges against that reporter who just looked at the contents of a web page to find that it was containing social security numbers, despite the governor saying he was a hacker. I've got yet another story about AirTags, and I, I know I've been beating this one to death. I'll try to keep this one short, but it, somebody actually did an analysis of you know the relative safety, safety and privacy of Apple's AirTags versus Tile and uh, GPS trackers you could just buy off Amazon, uh, and I thought it was interesting, so I will just very briefly touch on that. There is a security vulnerability found in the Mac T2 chip. Uh, that's a security chip, which we're going to be hearing a lot about in a couple of weeks when we talk to Microsoft about their Pluton initiative. But basically, it's a security chip on the machine that is supposed to keep your hard drive locked when it's encrypted. Uh, but somebody's figured out a slow and ineffective way to kind of work around that. So anyway, I'll give you more details on that. The U.S. Senate has come out strongly against a newly revealed CIA program that's been collecting a lot of data in bulk on U.S. citizens. Uh, here we go again. <laughs> Not good. Uh, I'll uh, catch you up on that. Then I ran across this one article that was just horrific, and it's a, we've talked about proctoring software and how you know kids today in high school and college are expected to submit to extreme surveillance to take their tests from home. And, you know, I get what they're trying to do, but this article will show how it's really gotten super ugly and how we need to change things. But this story is a new twist on that that is even worse. I mean, it's it, it's basically entrapment. It's just horrible. Then I'm going to talk about something that I've mentioned before, uh, but it, there's a new news article about how ultrasonic signals are being used to track you. And yes, I know it sounds like tinfoil hat, black helicopter stuff, but I will explain it. It actually is real. And then Google has decided to jump on the uh, anti-tracking bandwagon, or at least they say they are. (laughs) We talked about their topics thing last week for the browser. This is for mobile devices, for Android specifically. And they say they're, you know, doing better than even Apple did with its uh, app tracking transparency. And I have some issues with that, but uh, we'll talk about that article and I will give you my take. And then finally, for my tips of the week, we'll have part two of my de-Google Your Life campaign. And today, we're going to tackle Gmail and Gcal. In other words, Google's email and calendaring services. So, lots to talk about. Let's get to it. All right, first up, a small but significant victory. Uh, Microsoft, I don't know why it took them so long to do this, but let me read briefly from this article from Wired Magazine. It says... Tricking someone into enabling macros on a downloaded Microsoft Excel or Word file is an old hacker chestnut. That one click from a target creates a foothold for attackers to take over their devices. This week, though, Microsoft announced a seemingly minor tweak with massive implications. Beginning in April, macros will be disabled by default in files downloaded from the Internet. What a concept. Sorry, that was my own editorializing. Uh, Macros are small pieces of software used to automate tasks like data collection without the need to develop additional tools or applications. Businesses rely on them heavily, especially those with legacy infrastructure, and they play a crucial role in everything from financial services to government organizations. But as an individual Microsoft 365 user, it's not unusual if your only interaction with macros has been clicking that pesky allow button. For attackers, being able to write little programs within massive trusted applications like Excel or Word creates the opportunity to develop what are essentially macro viruses. 
Bad actors can also craft these programs to automatically download and run additional malware on victim devices. As a result, whether you use the feature in your daily life or not, everyone has faced risk from it for decades, making Microsoft's move this week all the more significant. And this is a quote from an incident responder and a former NSA hacker, Jake Williams. He says, quote, A few years from now, we'll look back on this announcement as the single biggest change Microsoft made for mitigating threat actor initial access. Your apex-grade threat actors, or the NSO groups of the world, aren't using this stuff anymore anyway, but this will impact scammers, ransomware groups, and other criminals for sure, unquote. At least a quarter of ransomware attacks against businesses or other organizations start with phishing attempts, which often dangle a malicious document laced with tainted macros, according to Brett Callow, a threat analyst at the antivirus company MZSoft. And this is a quote from Brett Callow. He says, quote, I'm very happy about Microsoft's announcement. Cyber criminals, on the other hand, will be far from happy. Really, the change was long overdue, unquote. And yes, indeed, this was long overdue. This is such a simple change that they should have made much sooner than now. But I'm happy to see that they're finally doing it. Next up, we talked uh, last news show about how the IRS was planning to force U.S. citizens who file taxes to submit basically face scans as a way to prove their identity. And it caused a big backlash from privacy advocates. And it looks like they are relenting. So this is an article from Krebs on Security, who uh, actually broke this story kind of last month. And it says the Internal Revenue Service, or IRS, said today it will be transitioning away from requiring biometric data from taxpayers who wish to access their records at the agency's website. The reversal comes as privacy experts and lawmakers have been pushing the IRS and other federal agencies to find less intrusive methods for validating one's identity with the U.S. government online. Late last year, the login page for the IRS was updated with text advertising that by summer of 2022, the only way for taxpayers to access their records at irs.gov will be through ID.me, an online identity verification service that collects biometric data, such as live facial scans using a mobile device or a webcam. In the face of COVID, dozens of states collectively lost tens of billions of dollars at the hands of identity thieves, impersonating out-of-work Americans seeking unemployment insurance. Some 30 states and 10 federal agencies now use ID.me to screen for ID thieves applying for benefits in someone else's name. But ID.me has been problematic for many legitimate applicants who saw benefits denied or delayed because they couldn't complete ID.me's verification process. Many readers were aghast, and these are readers of Krebs' blog, many readers were aghast that the IRS would ask people to hand over their biometric and personal data to a private company that began in 2010 as a way to help veterans, teachers, and other public servants qualify for retail discounts. These readers had reasonable questions. Who has or will have access to this data? Why should it be stored indefinitely, post-verification? What happens if ID.me gets breached? And this is a quote from IRS Commissioner Chuck Reddig. He says, quote, The IRS takes taxpayer privacy and security seriously, and we understand the concerns that have been raised. Everyone should feel comfortable with how their personal information is secured, and we are quickly pursuing short-term options that do not involve facial recognition, unquote. The statement further stressed that the transition announced today does not interfere with the taxpayer's ability to file their return or pay taxes owed. Another quote from the IRS, they say, quote, during this period, the IRS will continue to accept tax filings and it has no other impact on the current tax season. People should continue to file their taxes as they normally would, unquote. It remains unclear what other service or method the IRS will use going forward to validate the identities of new account signups. Senator Ron Wyden and others have urged the IRS to use login.gov, a single sign-on service that Congress required federal agencies to use in 2015. So yeah, basically, our government is huge, right? As many countries' governments are sprawling and, you know, they don't all talk to each other, all these various agencies. And so there basically already exists an authentication service called login.gov, which I don't know if I've used or not, that apparently is much, much better with privacy and doesn't require biometrics. And, you know, so why not just switch to that? But again, this is just another case just to show you that Pushback helps. It matters. Things can change. An IRS announced it was going to do this, and when they got scrutiny for it and pushback, they changed their mind. All right, next up, I talked about this, I don't know, a couple months ago. And uh, basically, there was a government website that if you simply right-clicked on it to show the source, in other words, you know, show me the HTML code, a JavaScript code that is making this page, which anybody can do, it revealed that buried in the data on this page was a lot of social security numbers from state employees. 
and a reporter uh, brought this to the attention of the government there in Missouri, and the governor basically said, you were hacking us and was told him he was going to prosecute. Well, here's an update on that story. And this is from KCUR, which I think is an NPR station in Missouri. Uh, From their website, it says, A St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporter targeted by Missouri Governor Mike Parson for uncovering a security flaw in a state-run website won't face criminal charges. The decision comes after the governor spent months publicly labeling the reporter a hacker for discovering the flaw and notifying the state about it. Parson asked the state highway patrol to investigate and repeatedly said the reporter had committed a crime. In a statement released on Twitter Friday evening, and this was, I think, last Friday, Post-Dispatch reporter Josh Renault and I think that's how you pronounce it, R-E-N-A-U-D, confirmed the Cole County prosecutor has declined to file charges. And this is a quote from him. He says, quote, this decision is a relief, but it does not repair the harm done to me and my family, unquote. In early October, Renault discovered that social security numbers for teachers, administrators, and counselors were visible in the HTML code of a publicly accessible website operated by the state education department. HTML code is the programming that tells the computer how to display a web page. Emails obtained by the independent show Renault informed the state of the issue and promised to withhold publishing any story about it until the problem was fixed and the social security numbers were no longer exposed. He also laid out to the state officials in an email the steps he'd taken to find and confirm the security flaw. That included contacting three teachers to verify the information in the HTML code was their social security number. Yet despite the fact that officials within the Missouri Department of Elementary and Secondary Education initially wanted to thank Renault for uncovering the flaw, and an FBI agent told the department the incident is, quote, not an actual network intrusion, unquote, Parson labeled the reporter a hacker and called for criminal prosecution. Renault said he worried the government's threats against him would deter people from reporting security and privacy flaws in Missouri government websites in the future, decreasing the chance those flaws get fixed. So yeah, we we saw this coming. There's there's nothing you could possibly charge this guy with. It was not under any definition hacking. That information was just sitting there for anybody to find. It was just obscured by the fact that it wasn't directly visible on the web page. You had to right click on the page to look at the source code of that page to see it. And he did the exact right thing in terms of responsible disclosure. He let them know, told them that he verified it, told them basically how to fix it, like get rid of this, and promised not to publish the story until they had fixed it. He did everything right. Calling him a hacker and threatening to prosecute was completely the wrong thing to do. And he's absolutely right. This sort of pressure tactics are going to prevent other people from coming forward in the future. Like, you know, I've thought about this myself, you know, as somebody who dabbled in some, you know, white hat hacking stuff and doing some bug bounty work. Those programs are built around, you know, getting agreement ahead of time. Like these companies say, I want you to try to hack this. Here are the parameters. Here are your limitations. Here's how you report it. And if you find something, you know, something juicy, we'll pay for it. But these other cases where you just kind of stumble onto something and you find that something's insecure, you know, what do you do? They didn't ask for you to go looking for this stuff, but it's there for anybody to find. And, you know, and if, if you think that someone's going to come out and call you a hacker and, you know, ruin your reputation and potentially prosecute you, you might think twice. So anyway, I'm glad that this had that ending. It's just a shame you had to go through all this for the right ending to happen. All right, next up, another another story about Apple's AirTags. And I'm not going to read this whole thing, though I would recommend you, if you're at all interested or worried about this topic, follow the show notes. Uh, there's a link there to the full New York Times article uh, from Kashmir Hill, who's a great reporter, does some really great stuff. And she did a really thorough investigation of this, and I think uh, had a really fair analysis of this stuff. But let me read briefly from this 9to5Mac article, which summarizes her article, Uh, And I've further summarized it to keep it short because I've talked about this a lot already, but here are the highlights. Following Apple's announcement of new AirTag and Find My changes to address stalking concerns, a new story from the New York Times offers a deep dive into this situation. The report explores using AirTag, Tile, and a standard GPS tracker for nefarious purposes, and it really shows how much more advanced Apple's prevention features are. And again, Tile was a name brand of a little Bluetooth tracking device, a little square, maybe an inch square device or an inch and a half square plastic thing that you could hook onto something and, you know, use Bluetooth devices to try to find it. Anyway, so that was kind of the big game in town before AirTags came along. But again, as this article is talking about, you can go on Amazon right now for like 30 bucks and get one of these GPS trackers that they're talking about. That's got a little magnet in it and it works on cell phone networks. So it works basically anywhere. So anyway, let me just finish this article. I'll say a little bit more. 
New York Times reporter Kashmir Hill set out to compare Apple AirTag, Tile, and a uh, GPS tracker by planting them on her husband, with his consent, of course. Hill planted three AirTags, three tiles, and a GPS tracker on her husband and his belongings to, quote, see how precisely they revealed his movements and which ones he discovered, unquote. The experiment was put to the test quickly when Hill's husband had to take the couple's daughter to the hospital after she tested positive for COVID-19. While this GPS tracker from Amazon was able to show location status in real time, the tile and AirTag, quote, didn't work as well in real time out in the sparsely populated area where we live, unquote. This is because tile and AirTag rely on their respective networks of devices for location data rather than dedicated GPS and cellular connections. The full piece from the New York Times is well worth a read and can be found here. Again, there's a link that you can click on in the show notes. The key seems to be that a standard GPS tracker is clearly more nefarious than an AirTag or Tile, and that Apple's safety precautions are indeed leagues ahead of either. So yeah, this is what I'm saying. Again, these are just technologies that can be abused, and there are other ways to track somebody that are not much more expensive than an AirTag. Um, these GPS trackers that we're talking about, that you, again, you can just go right now to Amazon, you can look these things up, you can get one for about 30 bucks. Uh, the cellular service does cost money. It might be, you know, 10 or 15 bucks a month for the cellular service, but that's still pretty cheap and it's way better tracking and much more covert uh, than an AirTag. All right, moving on, there's another story about Max. And this is about uh, a security firm who's found a flaw in their T2 security chip, which is their kind of a secure enclave or a, a little specialized bit of hardware for doing um, cryptography and things like that. So this is another article from 9to5Mac, and it says, A company selling password cracking tools says that a newly discovered T2 Mac security vulnerability allows it to crack passwords on these machines bypassing the lockouts. The method used is far slower than conventional password cracking tools, but although the total time needed could run into thousands of years, that could fall to as little as 10 hours when the Mac owner has used a more typical password, in other words, a bad one. Apple introduced the new T2 security chip in 2018, and it was used to provide a secure boot-up feature to Intel Macs from that year on. And these are present in their M1-based computers as well. The key to T2 security is that the chip contains both an SSD controller and a crypto engine, allowing it to instantly decrypt and encrypt data on the fly. This is similar to File Vault, but even more secure as only the T2 chip can do the decryption. And security features on the chip prevent an attacker from modifying macOS to gain access. Passware, and that's the name of this company, was already able to crack passwords and decrypt file vault protected drives on older Macs without the T2 chip. This uses GPU acceleration to achieve brute force attacks of literally tens of thousands of passwords per second, making it a trivial task to break into these Macs. Until recently, however, it wasn't practical to mount brute force attacks on Macs with a T2 chip. This is because the Mac password is not stored on the SSD, in other words, the, uh, the hard drive, and the chip limits the number of password attempts that can be made, so you'd instead have to brute force the decryption key, and that is so long it would take millions of years. However, 9to5Mac has learned that Passware is now offering an add-on module that can defeat Macs with the T2 chip, apparently by bypassing the features designed to prevent multiple guesses. Having defeated this protection, users can then apply the dictionary of their choice. And by dictionary, they mean a dictionary of potential passwords. Passware provides a dictionary of the 550,000 most commonly used passwords created from various data breaches, along with a larger one of 10 billion passwords. The process is still slower than usual at a relatively sedate 15-ish passwords per second. In theory, this could still take thousands of years, but most people use relatively short passwords, which are vulnerable to dictionary attacks. The average password length is just six characters, which can be cracked in around 10 hours. Passware says that the add-on module is only available to government customers as well as private companies who could supply a valid justification for its use. Well, that sounds kind of vague. Passware requires physical access to your Mac, so it is not a major concern for most of us. The main advice is, however, the same for everyone. One, use long passwords. The longer, the better. Two, don't use passwords found in a dictionary. And three, include special characters. So let me back up here and, and explain a couple things. So I talked about password strength in an episode a while back, and basically it really comes down to how long your password is. Assuming it's unguessable, assuming you don't pick easy to guess words like 
you know, straight up English words out of the dictionary or your grandkids' names or your anniversary date or, you know, something associated with your favorite sports team, you know, any of those things that might be easy to guess. Then it comes down to this brute force technique where you basically have to guess every possible password there is uh, and just keep going until you find find the one that there is. You know, is it AAA? No. Is it AAB? No. Is it AAC? Or, you know, <laughs> you're literally guessing every possible combination, you know, of lowercase, uppercase, numbers, special characters. And that takes time, even at computer speeds, which can do, you know, potentially millions of guesses a second. So the longer your password is, the more guesses they would have to make before they finally find the one that it is. So, so if you're fighting a brute force technique, you know, length and complexity of your password is really what you want here. And again, what this is saying is that if somebody were to steal your laptop or steal your computer or somehow remove the hard drive from your computer uh, and it was encrypted with this technique that they have, they could very slowly brute force your hard drive's encryption to eventually decrypt it. But even in this case, it's really, really slow. Normally, the T2 chip should stop you from guessing if you guess too many times in a row that are wrong. But it sounds like these guys have figured out some way to bypass that limit so they can just keep guessing. Nevertheless, it's still extremely slow, which is probably on, on purpose. And so as long as you've got a good password, even with this problem, uh, your hard drive is not in danger of being decrypted. Nevertheless, I assume Apple will probably fix this at some point and this door will be closed. This is related to the TPM chips in Windows machines, uh, trusted platform module. And it's going to be the basis for a discussion we're going to have with a representative from Microsoft in a couple of weeks when we talk about their new Pluton project. So stay tuned for that. Okay, next up, an article from The Hill. And it's I'll just jump in. It says... Senators Ron Wyden and Martin Heinrich said in a letter that was partly declassified Thursday that the CIA has been collecting data in bulk in a secret program that could impact Americans' privacy. In a letter sent to CIA Director William Burns and National Intelligence Director Avril Haines in April, the two Senate, the two Senate Intelligence Committee members called for more information on the program to be declassified. In addition to declassifying the senator's letter, the CIA also on Thursday declassified a portion of recommendations from a report compiled by a watchdog, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, on the program. Significant portions of both the letter and the recommendations were redacted. The rest of the report remains fully classified. Wyden and Heinrich allege in the letter that the program has operated outside of laws passed and reformed by Congress, but under the authority of Executive Order 12333. A document signed by former President Reagan in 1981 that governs intelligence community activity, according to the Associated Press. And this is a quote from those lawmakers. It says, quote, the CIA has secretly conducted its own bulk program. It has done so entirely outside the statutory framework that Congress and the public believe govern this collection and without any of the judicial, congressional or even executive branch oversight that comes with FISA collection. And that is referring to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. This basic fact has been kept from the public and from Congress until the PCLOB, and that's the uh, Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Until that report was delivered last month, the nature and full extent of the CIA's collection was withheld even from the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, unquote. They called for the CIA to release information on the nature of the agency's, quote, relationship with sources and the legal framework for the collection, unquote, as well as the kind of records being collected and how much of Americans' data is being maintained. They also pressed the agency to declassify information on the, quote, rules governing the use, storage, dissemination, and queries, including U.S. person queries of the records, unquote. According to portions of the PCLOB report's recommendations declassified by the CAA, agency analysts using the program that looks for information related to U.S. persons are warned by a pop-up box that doing so requires a foreign intelligence purpose. However, the program does not require analysts to provide a justification for their search, according to the recommendations, which urged the agency to require them to do so. Okay, so this is, you know... Another secret program that shouldn't be secret, and as far as I'm concerned, has the potential for Snowden-level revelations here. That's that's not good. So I'm glad that you know these guys brought this to light, and hopefully they'll look into it and get this stuff straightened out. All right, next up, an article from The Markup, uh, and this is about you know, home proctoring of exams, which has been an issue that's really ticked me off 
not the least of which because I have two daughters that tell me about what they have to go through in college uh, with all this crap. But it's, we just, with COVID, we, we had the opportunity to change our teaching uh, and verification paradigm in, in schools, and we just blew it. We just doubled down on what we had. Uh, and this is really taking it too far. So let me read this article from the markup. It says, when Kurt Wilson, a computer science student at the University of Central Florida, heard that his university was using a controversial online proctoring tool called HonorLock, he immediately wanted to learn more. The company, whose business has boomed during the pandemic, promises to ensure that remote students don't cheat on exams through AI-powered software used by students that, quote, monitors each student's exam session and alerts a live U.S.-based test proctor if it detects any potential problems, unquote. The software can scan students' faces to verify their identity, track specific phrases that their computer microphone captures, and even promises to search for and remove test questions that leak online. One feature from Honorlock especially piqued Wilson's interest. The company, according to its materials, provides a way to track cheating students through what Honorlock calls quote-unquote seed sites, or what others would call honeypots, fake websites that remotely tattle on students who visit them during exams. Wilson poured over a patent for the software to learn more, finding example sites listed. By looking for common code and the same test questions over the past year, Wilson eventually turned up about a dozen honeypots apparently linked to HonorLock, five of which are still operating. The sites Wilson found are bare bones. They have names like gradepack.com and quizlookup.com. They're largely a catalog of thousands of apparent test questions that are sometimes bizarrely specific. And here's an example, quote, in which part of the digestive system does chemical digestion begin, unquote. And another multiple choice uh, question on here was, quote, VSEPR theory to predict the molecular geometry around the carbon atom in formaldehyde, H2CO, unquote. Click on the quote unquote show answer button below any of these questions and you won't get help, but will be rewarded with a digital chiming noise and no answer. But visitors to the sites are having detailed information about their mouse movements and even typing transmitted to an Honorlock server. In the patent, recently flagged along and with an Honorlock uh, honeypot site by student media at Arizona State University, the company explains that its sites can track visitor information like IP addresses as evidence that a student was looking up answers on a secondary device. When the pandemic led to shuttered schools, demand for services like Honorlock skyrocketed as as educators worried about whether students would be able to easily find answers online uh, using devices that instructors didn't know about. But some experts in the ethics of education worry techniques like honeypot websites simply go too far. And this is a quote from Sarah Eaton, an associate professor at the University of Calgary who studies academic integrity. And she says, I could sum up this activity in one word, entrapment, unquote. Apart from honeypots, proctoring software's rapid ascent has also given rise to other privacy and ethics concerns. Some students and ed educators argue that the software leads to an anxiety-inducing testing environment, yeah, and others have raised technical concerns pointing to face detection software that fails to recognize the faces of darker-skinned students. The fear of an all-seeing proctor can have brutal side effects. One woman went into labor while taking a remote bar exam but continued with the test afraid of being flagged for cheating. For educators, the draw of software that promises to automatically track down cheaters is clear, but some experts argue that it isn't a problem that can or should be fixed by advances in technology to surveil students, but a rethinking of how students are tested in the first place. Pedagogy ethicists like Cecilia Parnthner, an associate professor at St. John's University, say that this kind of software is backfiring by creating an environment where students are, by default, under suspicion. That mindset itself facilitates cheating, she says, by subtly suggesting to students that they might as well cheat because teachers expect them to anyway. Eaton proposes that educators should consider a more radical rethinking of testing, one that doesn't rely on surveilling students. Punishing students for using their devices fundamentally goes against how learning works in the age of the internet, Eden says, and the cat and mouse game of sussing out possible cheaters isn't working. Moving to a better system might mean shifting to more oral or open book exams, for example, which still demonstrate proficiency without the specter of simply Googling answers. So yes, we need to rethink how we educate our students and how we verify that they have learned what they you know, are supposed to have learned so that we can certify them. And it really should match the real world. I mean, we are in an information-based world today. You know, searching for things online was crucial for my job as a software engineer. 
we should actually be teaching kids how to do better searches, how to find more information, how to weed out the good from the bad. That's all part of what we do today. That should be part of the training, actually. All right, moving on. This is a post from Kim Commando, who always has some good stuff. And this is about something that I've talked about before, which is just so super creepy. Uh, but I just wanted to show you that this is actually real. So when these articles come up, they're, they're, they're good to read. So in this article, she says, Did you know that advertisers are now using inaudible, high-frequency, ultrasonic sounds to track your behavior across devices without your knowledge? It's a harrowing thought, but it is actually happening. With this method, ultrasonic sounds that can't be perceived by a human ear are embedded into TV or computer ads. Although these sounds are inaudible to you and me, these high-frequency sounds can be picked up by a smartphone or its tablet's microphone, allowing marketers to pair browser cookies to track a single user's behavior across multiple devices. These sounds can come from virtually anywhere. Web pages, billboards, posters, cars, sports stadiums, retail outlets, etc. This is the first seamless way to track a single user's cross-device activity, and it naturally raised some privacy concerns for consumer protection groups, such as the Center for Democracy and Technology. A recent study from the Braunschweig University of Technology in Germany likewise raised security concerns. According to the study, quote, this side channel allows an adversary to identify a user's current location, spy on her TV viewing habits, or link together her different mobile devices, unquote. The study also revealed 234 Android apps that were created using publicly sourced tracking software code developed for companies like McDonald's and Krispy Kreme. Unfortunately, the researchers did not release the name of all the tracking apps. These apps utilize ultrasonic sound beacons to access a gadget's microphone to display location-specific advertising content such as tickets for concerts or product placements. The study notes that several brick-and-mortar stores in Europe already have these ultrasonic beacons in operation. Shopping apps like Shopkick, which gives its users discounts, uses these beacons positioned at the front of brick-and-mortar stores to detect if a customer has stepped into the store. Some apps and smartphone games are even programmed to access a smartphone's mic without permission. In response to these discovered practices, Google has announced that Android apps that are found to be using ultrasonic tracking will be banned or suspended unless they are updated in adherence with the Google Play Store's updated privacy policies. The new policies now require developers to disclose an app's ultrasonic features and ask a user's permission before the gadget's mic can be used for ultrasonic tracking. While ultrasonic beacon tracking is not widespread yet, the researchers state it has grown at an alarming rate over the past year, from a mere six apps in April 2015 to the 234 they discovered recently. So, yeah, this, this is a thing. So... The way I've heard it described is with this other technology called Silver Push. And what this is meant to do is track what ads you're viewing or even what programs you're watching on your television uh, while you're also on your smartphone or your tablet. So basically, there's some app running on your smartphone or tablet that you have given permission to access your microphone, hopefully, who has turned on the microphone and is listening for your television uh, or a radio or whatever nearby to emit one of these ultrasonic signals. So it might know what show you're watching right now. It might know what ads you were just shown. And then if it can then figure out, hey, I, he just watched this ad on television, and then he immediately went to his browser and searched for this, uh, because now the app can start doing cookie management to detect you know, and correlate those two events. And now they've jumped the tracking from your television to your smart device. Some stores, like they said, they're using these things, you know, so that if you got an app running and you walk in the store and that app is programmed to listen for the signals that they know when you enter the store, even if they don't have your precise location, it's, it's just crazy. The links that these guys are going to, to try to track us. It's just nuts. All right. One more story. This one's about uh, Google and this will lead in nicely to the tips of the week. And this is from Gizmodo. And it says the weirdest part about our privacy, as far as our devices are concerned, is that the way you define the word is pretty tied to your finances. Just ask Google. When most lawmakers talk about the terms like privacy abuse or surveillance, it's usually in big sweeping terms that are light on details and heavy on scare quotes. Take those words to business types in Silicon Valley, though, and you'll likely hear about, well, costs and benefits. On one hand, surveillance is clearly profitable. On the other hand, privacy is profitable, too. We spend billions on privacy-related tech each year. And the God knows how many browsers and apps using privacy as their main pitch have seen users flocking their way. 
It's a market threat, and the tech giants know it, which is why we've started seeing Mark Zuckerberg, who's the head of Facebook or Meta, use phrases like, quote, the future is private, unquote, when talking about his company, or Tim Cook, uh, who's the CEO of Apple, using a massive billboard to essentially say that the iPhone is privacy. But in these cases, privately usually means private enough. The big reason that Apple lets some privacy abuses slide and Facebook is, well, Facebook, is because that's what the bottom line demands. I hate to break it to you, but a tech giant's privacy promises aren't about you or your safety. They're about towing whichever part of the line between surveillance and security brings in the most cash. So when Google announced in a Wednesday blog post, I think this was just last Wednesday, that it would be bringing a new set of Apple-esque tracking restrictions to its Android phones, my response was less huzzah and more hmm, especially considering how Google's $150 billion ad business is built on tracking users virtually everywhere they go. On Android devices in particular, that tracking happens with the help of a device-specific identifier baked into the hardware called a Google Advertising ID, which Google claims will be ushered out sometime over the next two years in favor of a privacy-protecting alternative built as part of what it's calling the Privacy Sandbox Initiative. Other goals Google noted were to, quote, limit sharing of user data with third parties, unquote, and, quote, reducing the potential for covert data collection, unquote, the same way Apple did with its recent iOS updates. That change gave iPhone owners the ability to turn off third-party tracking across their apps, and people did, with gusto. On a recent earnings call, Meta estimated that the company could lose $10 billion this year from Apple's updates. It all sounds like a hands-down win for privacy, right? Well, not according to Google. The announcement doesn't call out Apple by name, but it notes how, quote, other platforms have taken a different approach to ads privacy, unquote. Google called this unnamed company's tactic of, quote unquote, bluntly restricting developers and advertisers an ineffective approach. Further, a close read of Google's privacy sandbox announcement reveals the limits of the privacy protecting enhancements it has in mind. The new technology will be, quote, more private and privacy enhancing, but without putting access to free content and services at risk, unquote. That is to say, don't worry, Mark, the money will keep flowing. Meta, meanwhile, seemed totally on board with whatever ideas Google seemed to have. Graham Mudd, an ads VP at the company, tweeted about how encouraging Google's collaborative approach with industry groups was. Considering how Mudd was previously the one issuing somber blog posts about the impacts of Apple's privacy changes inflicted on his company, his optimism here should be a warning for all of us. Google might let us turn off tracking on Android in the future, but that's not going to happen at the expense of anyone's business. All right, so that article is written kind of in a funny way, but Google has basically come out and said, okay, we're going to jump on this you know, app tracking protection bandwagon as well. Uh, but this is more along the lines, it sounds to me like Flock, which is Google trying to have their cake and eat it too. Uh, they're trying to be more private, but not private. They're trying to reduce tracking, not eliminate tracking. I mean, you know, the devil will be in the details, we'll see. Uh, but <laughs> this is another case. Facebook basically did this as well when Apple announced some of its app tracking transparency stuff, you know, saying, you know, this is too crude of a method. This is going to be too restrictive and it's going to screw up the free internet. Well, if this is what it takes to cause our business models to change away from surveillance capitalism, I'm all for it. So that leads in perfectly to my tips of the week, uh, which will be part two of my de-googling my life campaign. So in the first part of this series, which I covered a couple weeks ago in the new show then, I talked about uh, switching away from Google Chrome browser, Google search, and the Android mobile operating system. Today, I'm going to tackle two more really big ones, and that is Gmail and Gcal, or Google's email and calendaring services. So as I've said before, I jumped into Gmail with both feet as soon as it came out uh, in 2004 and really thought it was cool. And it, Google Calendar, I think, came out a couple of years after that, and I jumped into that as well. My family was all into it. And so, you know, we shared our family calendars, which was really convenient. And over the years, I basically had two main email accounts. I had a Yahoo account that I used for spam and junk that I gave out to, you know, restaurants and signups for things that required email addresses, you know, all the places I was going to get junk email. And then I had my personal Gmail one that I only gave to friends and family. But I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of friends and family. So my email address is out there everywhere. But, you know, over the years, I've, you know, certainly wanted to get away from Google products where I could, and I 
tackled email several years ago. Uh, I'm actually still kind of in a transition point because like I said, so many people have my Google account, but I have come up with my solution for this. and I'm going to pass it on to you. First of all, email was created a long time ago. Like I think 60s or 70s. I mean, it's really that old. Uh, it really became more popular probably in the 90s, certainly when people got on the internet more and we had things like America Online. Uh, email, you know, kind of took off then, but it's been around for many, many decades. And the standards behind it uh, have been around all that time too, and they just were not built with security in mind, in particular encryption or privacy. And it's really hard at this point to bolt that on after the fact. But it can be done. I mean, this is what Phil Zimmerman did when he created PGP back in the 1990s. But even Phil will tell you today that that is not the best way to have a secure communication. Uh, email is just not, not a great way to go. You know, use something like Signal, for example. But what I'm going to focus on today is, well, two. I'm going to focus on two aspects of this because I really ended up with two solutions. I replaced Gmail with not one service, but two services. And each one serves a different purpose. So for me, the bulk of my email doesn't need to be encrypted. I would love it to be encrypted. I'd like it to be encrypted, but it's just not practical today because PGP is really hard to do. And if you want true end-to-end -end encryption, then you kind of break the standard. So you have to require that whoever you're sending that email to use the same email service in a lot of cases or have to jump through a whole lot of weird hoops just to read your email. And it's just not practical. So again, if secure communications is your thing, you need to be looking at you know messaging apps like Signal. But... We're talking email here, so Gmail in particular. So I replaced Gmail with two different solutions. And my first solution is a really good middle of the road option. It doesn't offer encryption end to end. Uh, obviously it is encrypted in transit, but it doesn't have end to end encryption built in. You can add that if you really want to, but it's private. They don't care about your data. They're not mining your data. Their policies uh, for privacy are really good. You have to pay for this because they got to make money somewhere. They're just not making it off of you. And the service that I went with, and I've tried several, is called Fastmail. I've actually interviewed the COO of Fastmail uh, before, uh, and she's great. And I've used Fastmail for many years now, and it's every bit as good as Google as far as, I, as far as I'm concerned. Except I know that they're not, you know, abusing my data. They've also got some great privacy features. They've got something called masked email, which is kind of like Apple's hide my email feature. It allows you to create dummy email addresses on the fly as little one-off things that you can give to somebody. Uh, you can treat it like your own email. It will come into your regular email inbox, but the recipient of that email address will never see your actual email address. And at any point, if they start abusing that address, you can just cut it off and you will never get email from them again. Fastmail has a really nice web, uh, web client. So if you want to check your email through the web, which is how I do it almost all the time. Or you can use any standard mail client like Apple's mail uh, app or Outlook or whatever you want. Because they support regular email standards, you can use it with you know basically any client you want. Now they do have a $30 a year plan, but it's very basic. Um, I think you'll probably end up going with a $50 per year plan. That's what I've got. Uh, and it's well, well worth it. And if you go for the $50 route, you can actually bring your own custom domain as well, which is a whole other topic, but it gives you some other interesting uh, options for handing out email addresses. So anyway, for my daily driver, for most of my email, my personal email and my, certainly all my business emails, I use Fastmail for that. Now my email addresses don't say fastmail.com because I brought my own domain, <laughs> but behind the scenes, they are being serviced by Fastmail. Now for secure email, and I did want to have a secure email address. I can't really be a security and privacy advocate and not have this. I looked at many, many services. Um, and there's, there's easily a dozen decent, you know, private and secure email services out there. And I kind of came down to two. It was either Tutanota or ProtonMail. And I'm currently still using both, but I, I'm going to give up on Tutanota. It's, it's okay, but their web interface is still kind of clunky. Uh, and to me, it doesn't offer any real advantages over ProtonMail. So for a truly secure end-to-end -end encrypted email service, I think ProtonMail is by far the easiest for people to use, and it's quite good. Now, to get end-to-end -end encryption without any effort, you have to email somebody else who also has a ProtonMail account because they're doing special things uh, to make that encrypted. But if you're emailing somebody else with a ProtonMail account, it just happens. It, you just get it for free, and it's completely frictionless. Now, they do have some interesting options for people who are not also on ProtonMail. You can send a secure encrypted email message to somebody on Gmail, for example. And what will happen is they will get an email from ProtonMail saying, hey, Carrie sent you this secure email. Click here 
to read it. And it will take you to a ProtonMail site. They don't have to have a ProtonMail account, but it'll take them to a ProtonMail site that will let them read the secure email after they've entered an agreed upon password. And they can even reply from there in an encrypted fashion. So it's kind of like, you know, letting them have a, a light ProtonMail account without having to actually sign up. Now, ProtonMail uh, does have a free account, but it's very limited. Uh, if you want to just try it, I'd certainly do that. You know, sign up for the free ProtonMail account and just give it a go. And that will cost money, uh, which is good. <laughs> it, it should cost money because, again, they got to make somewhere. And it's better that they make it, you know, honestly from you instead of, you know, after monetizing you. But their plus account, which is what I have, is 48 euros per year, which currently is about $54 a year. I highly recommend it, and I would give it a shot just to say you've tried it. Like, just go set up your ProtonMail account. Again, you can get a freebie. You know, go stake out your name. Find yourself a good username and stake out that account and give it a try. Get, you know, get some of your friends and family to give it a shot with you. All right, so the next part of this is uh, Google Calendar, and we're going to throw in Google Contacts just for the heck of it because, honestly, it's like hitting the easy button because both of the solutions that I just gave you, FastMail and ProtonMail, also come with really nice calendar programs and really good contact management software. So basically, if you do either of the two things I just gave you, you will also get a great replacement for Google Calendar and Google Contacts. And like Google Calendar, you can share your calendars with other people. You can look at calendars that are not ProtonMail calendars because calendaring software like email has got standards built around it that allow you to you know, import uh, calendars from other places, or get links that will allow you to merge your calendars into one space so that even though the calendar is not hosted by FastMail or ProtonMail, uh, you can actually still see it merged in with your other calendar stuff. There's also a couple great articles. Uh, if you go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, you'll see my blog article that talks about all of this stuff we just talked about today. And there'll be two links in there with specific information about how you want to migrate from Google to FastMail or from Google to ProtonMail. It'll actually allow you to bring in emails from Google into those services so that they're now all in the other service. And all your contacts and your calendar events, you could basically bring it all over because they know that people are coming from Google. And so they've gone to great lengths to make that as seamless as possible. Now, a couple more quick notes about these two solutions before we go on. Uh, because ProtonMail is so focused on security, you can't just use your regular mail app on your um, on your mobile device currently. You have to use the ProtonMail app. However, they did come up with an interesting solution for uh, computers, either desktop or laptop computers, so that you can use your favorite mail client there. They have this thing called a bridge, which kind of sits between your email client and ProtonMail. Uh, and kind of converts. So uh, it runs locally on your machine, and it does all the encryption and decryption there, and then your mail app or Outlook or whatever pulls email through that and then doesn't have to worry about all the encryption stuff. Now, the other thing I'll mention here is security for all these things really depends on your personal threat model. You know, what are you worried about? What are the ramifications of somebody being able to read your email when you didn't want them to? ProtonMail has limitations. Most of these things do have some limitations. Like for example, ProtonMail, I'm not sure why, this is probably a technical reason, doesn't encrypt the subject line of your email. So even though the contents might be fully encrypted end to end, the subject would still be visible to somebody sniffing the uh, the internet uh, as, your, as your email goes by. Or if they subpoenaed ProtonMail for data from your account, if that if that message is sitting on their server, and I don't know how long they retain your messages, but if that message is sitting on their server, they would be able to read the subject, if not the contents. Also, uh, and I think I talked about this, ProtonMail got into uh, a lot of hot water last year when there was, uh, you know, law enforcement came knocking and said, hey, we need the IP addresses of somebody. And, you know, normally they would say they don't log these things, but according to the law of the land where they are in Europe, uh, if government comes and says, we need you to start logging IP addresses for this for somebody and then give us that information, they have to do it. Since then, ProtonMail has changed its wording to be a little more clear on that in terms of its privacy policy about how it must comply with local law enforcement. Uh, they also won a really big case in related to this that allowed them to you know, treat their customers with more privacy and not be subject to even greater uh, mandatory legal surveillance. So I have interviewed the CEO of ProtonMail, I think twice now, maybe three times, uh, Andy Yen. He's a great guy. These guys really are committed to privacy. They're doing the best they can, but everybody is subject to whatever laws exist wherever they are. So that doesn't concern me personally, but then my life doesn't depend on me having a secure email. So like anything related to security, if you're 
if this is life or death for you, uh, then, you know, you need to look into things and make it probably a different decision on some of these things. In fact, you probably just shouldn't be using email though. PGP would work just fine. It's just kind of a pain to use. So again, that, that wraps up my uh, tips for the week. Uh, you know, replacing Google Mail, Google Contacts, and Google Calendar. Uh, in my case, I chose two different options, and you could pick one of those two options if they work for you. Uh, if you're going to pick one of those, honestly, I would just go with FastMail. It, it really is a great service, and I've been very, very pleased with it. But, you know, because we want to support, you know, companies like ProtonMail, give that a shot too. Uh, just open up a free account, if nothing else, and get some of your friends and family to do it too. And just just give it a shot and try it out. And if you really like it, maybe, you, you know, maybe you make that your email program. And along the way, it will also handle calendars and contacts. Oh, and ProtonMail even has its own VPN, which is decent. So anyway, something to consider. Then there you have it. That's your news and tips of the week. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap it up today. Thanks for listening in. Again, the big five-year anniversary of the podcast is fast approaching. And along with that, sometime in March, I'm going to run a big promotion where I give away a bunch of stuff so we can celebrate the fifth anniversary. God, I can't believe it's been five years. That's crazy. So I'll probably be giving away, you know, copies of my book, you know, probably signed copies of the book, physical copies. Um, I've got some other uh, technical fund security privacy books to give away that I got from A-Press, my publisher. I'm talking to some of my other friends and other people in my network to try to get some fun swag to give away. Maybe some free subscriptions to some of these services we've been talking about. All those details are being worked on, but just stay tuned. There will be some sort of a big, big promotion in, in March. And yes, I will probably also throw in some challenge coins. So next week, got another interview for you. And this one's about cell phone security. And this one, this one's going to be kind of interesting. It's uh, the guy that I'm interviewing, uh, his clientele. Uh, he's the CEO of a, of a company called Ifani. Caters to real VIP types. These would be, you know, C-suite executives or other really fun of famous or rich people, but also people who trade a lot in cryptocurrency. So uh, that's been a security nightmare lately, especially for cell phone security uh, when we're talking about SIM swapping in particular. And if you think I talk fast, this guy talks really fast. I think he may give me a run for my money. So <laughs> you may find yourself... Uh, next week, you know, backing up a couple times to to hear everything we say, but it's a really interesting interview, uh, and that will be next week. And as I mentioned, the interview after that, you know, three weeks I guess down the line, will be from a Microsoft engineer about their new Pluton project. So, very interesting stuff. Subscribe if you haven't; that way you won't miss anything. If you become a patron, you will get my show notes automatically, along with a bunch of other great benefits, like you know, being able to chat with me on Discord and and all sorts of stuff. Go to patreon.com and you'll find all the, the list there of the cool stuff you could do if you're a patron. Or you could sign up for my newsletter. That's free. It's basically the same as my blog, but it comes to you uh, automatically every two weeks, including my now two articles on de-googling your life. So there you have it, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Until next week, as always, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.